Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, bringing the new year in with a feast of our best stories from across our coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on the new year table this week, we ask Anna Brnabitz, Prime Minister of Serbia, whether she's prepared to ask Vladimir Putin a very personal question. Bullets, white-knuckle landings and a chocolate fountain in our rundown of the world's worst airports and an economist's guide to dieting. But first, what happens when what is humanly possible is no longer enough? The next frontier when thoughts control machines was our cover line this week. The next frontier is the brain. Brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs, are no longer the stuff of wild fantasy. Our cover leader argued that they'll challenge the very essence of what it means to be human. Mr Kocheva is paralysed below the shoulders after a cycling accident, yet has managed to feed himself by his own hand. This remarkable feat is partly thanks to electrodes implanted in his right arm, which stimulate muscles. But the real magic lies higher up. Mr Kocheval can control his arm using the power of thought. Some kinds of BCI are already commonplace. Over 300,000 people have cochlear implants, which help them to hear by converting sound into electrical signals and sending them into the brain. And another seemingly miraculous application could be just a couple of years away. Imagine stimulating the visual cortex to help the blind, forging new neural connections in stroke victims or monitoring the brain for signs of depression. But the ambition of those hoping to control our minds is soaring. Facebook dreams of thought-to-text typing. Kernel, a startup, has $100 million to spend on neurotechnology. Elon Musk has formed a firm called Neuralink. He thinks that if humanity is to survive the advent of artificial intelligence, it needs an upgrade. Entrepreneurs envisage a world in which people can communicate telepathically with each other and with machines, or acquire superhuman abilities such as hearing at very high frequencies. Skeptics scoff that it's not as easy as just pushing a button, firing some neurons and getting superpowers. And existing devices have lots of drawbacks. They involve wires that pass through the skull. The brain is still a foreign country. Scientists know little about how exactly it works, especially when it comes to complex functions like memory formation. The idea of consumers clamouring for craniotomies also seems far-fetched. And the possibility of plugging in your brain brings other worries too. Privacy is an obvious one. The refuge of an inner voice may disappear. Security is another. If a brain can be reached on the internet, it can also be hacked. Inequality is a third. Access to superhuman cognitive abilities could be beyond all except a self-perpetuating elite. To find out just how close we are to having smart brains to sync with our smart kettles and even smarter TVs, pick up a copy of the latest issue of The Economist. You can also find us online at economist.com. 
can't yet all claim to have superpowers, but in the last couple of weeks, Economist Radio has been having a go at some prophecies. What will happen in 2018? In the latest episode of Money Talks, Simon Long asked John O'Sullivan, our economics editor, what the future might hold for the Eurozone. This is billed as the year in which we get landmark Eurozone reform. We're really going to start fixing the roof on, on the Eurozone architecture. No, this is the one, because the elections are over now, Simon. So it's, we're going to def- definitely, definitely do it this time. And I think we're definitely, definitely not going to do it. I think we, what we get is de minimis, and uh, it will be really just, I think for commentators like ourselves, not a great deal to really talk about. Oh, John, how very dare you. We'll always find something to talk about. To find out if John's predictions hold up, subscribe to Money Talks on Apple Podcasts or your audio app of choice. It's published every Tuesday. But the divination doesn't stop there. We're halfway through a special series of podcasts accompanying The Economist's annual forecasting publication, The World in 2018. I spoke to two young leaders about their hopes for the coming year, one in power, the other on the barricades. Anna Brunabitz became Prime Minister of Serbia last June. She's the first woman and the first openly gay person to hold the office in the Balkan country. In October, Serbia was accused of playing both sides in its relationships with Russia and the EU, a policy of sitting on two chairs. So I asked Anna how she would approach President Putin on his human rights record. If you met Mr. Putin, I don't know if you have already. No, I haven't. If you have, I mean, one obvi- obvious area of, of vast difference is his treatment of minorities, not least homosexuals. What would you say to him? Very good question. Uh, I'll see when I met him uh, whether we will uh, at all talk about this. Uh, but but remember that uh, it's not not all of the EU countries treat minorities equally well. And there are some EU countries that also uh, shy away from from really treating minorities well. It's not many of them with leaders who talk about homosexuals the way Vladimir Putin does. Not many, many of them. Any that I can think of. No, no, Come no. That's, <laughs> the, the, that's true. Now, that will be an interesting encounter. Another face from a new generation of leapers, albeit an unofficial one, is Joshua Wong. He came to prominence during the umbrella protests in Hong Kong in 2014. Joshua then went on to become leader of the pro-democracy party Demosisto. And last year he served three months in prison for peaceful protest. When I spoke to him for the world in 2018, he was, however, full of hope for the year ahead. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. With the uprising superpower of presidency, uh, I admit things become worse. But what I hope to encourage people is they can lock up our body, but they can't lock up our mind. If the one serving sentence have been put inside prison by China government still continue to stand in the front line to fight for democracy, I think there's no reason for us to step backward. And do look out for the second half of our series of The World in 2018, starting on Friday. Now, while some find hope in politics, others turn to religion. There are more than 200 million evangelical and Pentecostal Christians in Asia, up from just 17 million in 1970. Our correspondent went to visit the megachurches of Southeast Asia and wrote about them in the pages of this week's issue. Up several sets of escalators at a shopping mall in Singapore... 
Thousands of people take part in a two-hour service on a Saturday evening at the City Harvest Church, which has a weekly attendance of just under 16,000. The service involves a rock group leading the congregation in devotional songs, several instances of speaking in tongues, and testimony from Emily, a young Singaporean who converted her father to Christianity. It's not always easy being an out and proud evangelical in Southeast Asia. The Singaporean government is wary of proselytizers potentially stirring up religious tensions. Evangelical churches are flourishing in Malaysia and Indonesia in even less promising circumstances. Over 1,000 churches were closed in Indonesia between 2006 and 2014. In Malaysia, meanwhile, it is illegal for a Muslim to convert to Christianity, even though the constitution theoretically enshrines freedom of religion. But lately it seems that being too blessed to be stressed has become something of a status symbol. It is the de facto middle-class religion right now, says Mr Chong. Many of Southeast Asia's mega-churches preach an American-style prosperity gospel. Although there is lots of talk of charity and good works, wealth is celebrated as a gift from God. And though they may have been washed by the Spirit, they aren't all squeaky clean. In 2015, Kong Hee, the founder of City Harvest Church, and five other church leaders were found guilty of misappropriating 50 million Singapore dollars, that's $37 million, in church funds, partly to fund the music career of Mr Kong's wife, Ho Yao Soon. The devotional element of the song China Wine, in the video for which a scantily clad Miss Ho grinds it up with assorted wrappers, is hard to fathom. To find out why, despite circling demons and some fallen angels, Southeast Asian evangelicalism is flourishing, you can find the rest of the article in this week's Asia section. From queuing for the pearly gates to the departure gates of hell, the international section this week asked our furthest flung correspondents about their very worst air travel experiences in a roundup of the most horrible places to be stuck in transit. You'll be pleased you stayed home. To adapt Tolstoy, lovely airports are all alike, but every wretched airport is wretched in its own way. Consider Juba. The airport in South Sudan's capital is a sweltering tent next to a festering puddle. Our Africa editor cites Bongi in the Central African Republic. The fence around it has been stolen, so when big jets come in to land, the pilots keep their hands on the throttle so they can pull up if they see people trying to run across the runway. As in a sort of purgatory, once you're in an airport, you have to obey, follow the signs and fulfil your tasks if you ever hope to get out. This presents its own problems. Airports are full of choke points through which travellers must pass if they are to board their planes, creating opportunities for crooked officials to fleece them. The ones in Manila are especially creative. Some have been known to plant bullets in luggage so they can find them and demand bribes not to have their owners arrested. This scam is known in Tagalog as laglagbala, drop bullet. The many circles of airport hell each have their own distinct character. Pyongyang has a totalitarian vibe. A correspondent writes, The plane played rousing music when we flew over the border into North Korea and we were handed copies of the national newspaper and asked not to fold it since it had a photo of Kim Jong-il on the front page. The only consolation is that the airport has a chocolate fondue fountain. 
But after heated debate around the chocolate fountain, our correspondents concluded that the worst offenders are wealthy airports that should do better. Poor countries have an excuse for poor airports. Rich countries do not. Which is perhaps why travellers are particularly irked to find grottiness in, say, Luton, which claims, fancifully, to be close to London. An intern writes, Going on holiday and returning to Luton is like having a wonderful dream and waking up to find yourself in a puddle under a railway bridge. A rude awakening indeed. At least our science and technology podcast, Babbage, was in far more agreeable surroundings for an episode on the magic of trees. Our producer, Howard Shannon, spoke to Craig Harrison of Britain's Forestry Commission as they tramped through Wendover Woods. They are mysterious things, trees and forests, and there's still so much more we could learn. So a lot of the recent sort of understandings about how trees might communicate with each other by somehow chemical reactions across trees. So these are the sort of things that make us realise there's so much more to learn. And when you walk through the woodlands and no one's looking, Craig, do you, um, do you hug these trees? I certainly touch them on a regular basis. Very tactile, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think wood products, whenever you see people with wooden bowls or things in houses, you can't help but want to pick up wooden bowls and wood products. And connecting people with nature in that sort of way is, I think, really important. Subscribe to Babbage to find out why trees aren't just cuddly, they're vital to the Earth's health and what's being done to protect them. No paper at all was used in the making of this podcast, and you can rate it on your podcast app. Your feedback does mean a lot to us. And finally, did you, like me, slightly overdo it on the trimmings over the festive season? Well, look no further than this week's Books and Arts section, where a review offers some advice on the economics of your waistline. Do you indulge in QE, quantitative eating? Do you have a high marginal propensity to consume chocolate? Then you might be piqued by a diet book from two self-described formerly obese economists on how to lose weight. So what do you do when it's your BMI going up instead of your GDP? A diet is described as a self-imposed eating austerity programme. There is some discussion of people's general failure to give enough weight to the long-term consequences of their actions, a phenomenon known as hyperbolic discounting, and there is some neat use of the concept of diminishing returns. Knowing your canes from your Kahneman is all very well, but these economists have yet to provide any dazzling new insights into that elusive calorie deficit. The surprising formula promised by the book is scarcely a shocker. Eat less. At nearly 300 pages, however, it is rather repetitive. But, as experienced economists, the authors may have realised that, when it comes to diet plans, demand is almost infinite. So, as I reconcile myself to a new eating austerity programme, why not send us your resolutions or predictions for 2018 to radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. You can find more from all of the articles and the podcasts on this week's programme online. But I'm going to leave you in poetic mode with an offering from William Seacart, founder of the Forward Poetry Prizes and author of The Poetry Pharmacy. As part of our series and the world in 2018, he's been prescribing verses to treat the world's woes. And here is William, reading New Every Morning by Susan Coolidge. In London, this is The Economist. Every day is a fresh beginning. Listen, my soul, to the glad refrain. And spite of old sorrows and older sinning, troubles forecasted and possible pain,
take heart with the day and begin again. <laughs>